Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 29, Traveling on a Volcano. Notice, travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies, that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that, in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters, and that travelers sailing in the war zone on ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. Imperial German Embassy, Washington, D.C., April 22, 1915. This was the infamous warning which greeted passengers as they boarded the Cunard liner RMS Lusitania on May 1, 1915. Although 10 weeks earlier, Germany had announced its intention to conduct U-boat warfare against Allied shipping, this warning heeded little attention from the travelers boarding the 30,400-ton liner. Despite 66 merchant vessels sunk by U-boats since March, the idea of one targeting such a massive liner was unfathomable. Because of its size, 18.3 meters high, 240 meters long, and a top speed of 25 knots, the Lusitania was a cut above the rest. Since it was first launched in 1907, it had completed 201 Atlantic crossings, New York to Liverpool, and since the German proclamation of the war zone in February, had made the same voyage four times without incident. Simply put, the passengers and crew were not concerned one bit, and they had little reason to be. But as we know, on the afternoon of Friday, May the 7th, the Lusitania was struck by a single torpedo fired by U-20 off the Irish coast. There were two explosions, and the Lusitania sank in 18 minutes killing 1,200 passengers and crew, including 94 children and 128 American civilians. The sinking shocked the world and sparked a diplomatic crisis between Germany and the United States. The circumstances surrounding the Lusitania have led to a plethora of conspiracy theories, some of which argue it was all a setup by the British to get the United States into the war. For our discussion, we're not going to concern ourselves with the conspiracy side of things. Instead, we're just going to look at the established facts. The Lusitania sank, the reaction in America, Britain, and Germany, and what it meant for the first unrestricted U-boat campaign. To begin, it is important to not underestimate the influence the ocean liner had on popular imagination. It may be difficult to relate to now, in a world of mass transit, personal automobiles, and air travel, but in the early 20th century, the big passenger liners of Cunard, White Star, and Germany's Hamburg-America line were important symbols of national achievement. These powerful and luxurious ships were breathtaking feats of engineering, and inspired all all over the world. Crowds would throng the ports to see these mammoths come and go, and photographs were slapped on anything with a smooth surface. Postcards, magazines, buttons, and of course newspapers. A first-class ticket costs upwards of $400, adjusted for inflation, and you're looking at $9,500 US today. Further adding to their aura, these ships represented the only access to the outside world. In addition to taking passengers across the Atlantic, they also traveled to more exotic locations in the Caribbean, South America, and African coast. They carried not only people, but also mail, foodstuffs, and various other cargoes, making them vital to trade in national economies. Knowing anyone who had been near, worked, or traveled on these fantastic ships gave them all the bragging rights. The Lusitania was one ship in a fleet of many. She was built in 1907 alongside her sister ship, the Mauritania, in order to compete with the faster German liners of Hamburg America and North German Lloyd. As a side note, White Star ordered the construction of the Titanic in order to compete with these new generation of Cunard liners. In 1915, the Lusitania and Mauritania were the fastest and most luxurious ships in the world, soon earning their nickname the Greyhounds of the Sea. But there was a dual purpose to their construction. The first was, of course, to zip passengers and cargo across the Atlantic. Competition among shipbuilding companies was not unlike airline competition today, 
offering shorter travel time, better comfort, free Wi-Fi, that sort of thing. The second reason was not so public. To help cover construction expenses, the British Admiralty provided a subsidy to Canard, with the understanding that in the event of wartime, its liners would be converted into military use. When the war began, the Mauritania, along with several other Canard steamers, were pushed into service, for the purpose of hunting down fast German liners, but also to act as troop transports. As part of their dual role, the Lusitania and her sister were capable of carrying 12 6-inch guns, which could be added during refitting. Although not enough to sink a dreadnought or battlecruiser, the 100-pound shell from these guns was enough to defend against smaller warships, like destroyers and, of course, submarines. When she left New York on May 1, 1915, the Lusitania was still officially operating as an unarmed commercial liner, and was carrying 1,965 passengers and crew. But unbeknownst to the passengers, had been packed with 5,671 cases of cartridges and munitions, plus 189 containers of unspecified military goods. In short, the Lusitania can now be classified as an armed merchant cruiser. German naval planners had known Britain would use converted liners in military roles, and a precedent had already been established early in the war. On September 14, 1914, a German liner, the SMS Capturfolger, was sunk by the Cunard ship RMS Carmania off the Brazilian coast, resulting in 30 people killed and an additional 300 captured. It was the first and only time during the war that a converted liner sank a ship of the same class. The sinking of the Capturfolger, although a little-known event, convinced German naval staff that the threat of passenger liners was real enough, and thus they became targets of opportunity. On April 30th, U-20 officer Lieutenant Commander Walter Schweiger, age 29, left Portworth orders to patrol the waters off Liverpool. His written orders instructed him to attack any transport ships, merchant ships, and warships. Nowhere does it specify Lusitania, as many conspirators would have us believe. On May the 6th, U-20 was near the mouth of the Bristol Channel, just south of Wales, where it sank two British trawlers and came close to sinking a White Star liner. Later that afternoon, U-20 encountered an unexpected fuel problem, and Schweiger decided to hold position. Meanwhile, as Lusitania entered the war zone, Captain William Turner, a member of the Royal Naval Reserve, ordered the Union Jack to be taken down and an American flag hoisted in its place. The weather on the afternoon of May the 7th was crystal clear, and the water a deep blue. From his periscope, Schweiger spotted a large object, obscured by smoke heading in his direction. Schweiger's diary recounts what happened next. Quote, Ship has made out a large passenger steamer. We submerged to a depth of 11 meters and went ahead full speed, taking a course converging with the one of the steamer, hoping it might change course to starboard along the Irish coast. The steamer turns to starboard, takes course towards Queenstown, clear bow shot at a distance of 700 meters, end quote. The Lusitania, with a top speed of 25 knots, could outrun any U-boat the Germans had, and had Captain Turner not altered course, it could very well have escaped, like the White Star Liner the previous day. Before opening fire, Schweiger converted with a member of his staff, whose job was to identify suspect ships. According to the field manuals, the Canard 4 funneled steamer was classified as a reserved merchant cruiser. From 700 meters, U-20 fired a single torpedo, which thudded against the Lusitania on her starboard right side. Soon after impact, a second, much larger explosion followed. The superstructure was torn asunder, and soon fire and smoke consumed the bridge. As the bow dipped below water, U-20 circled the wreck, witnessing the scene of panic on board, and only then did they identify it as the Lusitania. Eighteen minutes after detonation, the last bit of the Lusitania dipped beneath the surface. Of the 1,965 passengers, only 761 would survive. Word of the sinking spread via Royal Navy Wireless, and the Allied reaction was swift. Photographs of the recovered bodies were printed in newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic. 
As the gory details emerged, it was the first time the American public caught an unfiltered glimpse of the war. In the United States, the death of 128 civilians was met with dismay. Now, it's important to point out that this was not the first time Americans had become casualties in the war. There had been American volunteers serving in British, French, and Canadian units since 1914, and on March the 28th, Leon Thrasher became the first U.S. citizen killed as a result of U-boat action, when the ship he was traveling on was sunk by U-28. But the Lusitania was something quite different. A world-class passenger liner, sunk without warning in broad daylight, stirred something deep in the American psyche. Their arguments with the British over the blockade were forgotten overnight, and now their ire was directed solely on Germany. 128 civilians demanded an answer. Fueling American and Allied anger was the fact that in Germany, news of the sinking was met with joy. The U-boat campaign was immensely popular with the German public, because the government had done an A-plus job selling it as defensive. The idea of a single U-boat sinking such a massive ship seemed to prove that the campaign was working. In short, the Germans hoped the loss of the Lusitania would either scare the British into loosening their blockade, or better yet, break their will to fight on. Unfortunately for Britain and Germany, it didn't matter one bit what they thought, because the American response was the real currency. I should point out here that although the bulk of public and political opinion held Germany accountable, there was a disagreement over what Washington's reaction should be. Former President Theodore Roosevelt called for military action, but Wilson's Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, felt that cutting diplomatic ties over the incident was a bit too much. The large German and Irish populations would kick up a fuss, and the southern trade capitalists could prove themselves a nagging headache. To his credit, President Woodrow Wilson was not going to get caught up in the euphoria. On top of being a lawyer, Wilson held a doctorate in history, something which should be mandatory for all world leaders in my opinion. To Wilson, the sinking of the Lusitania was similar to that of the USS Maine, an American battleship which exploded under mysterious circumstances while at anchor in Havana back in 1898. 260 American sailors were killed, and the rallying cry, remember the Maine to hell with Spain, did much to stir up resentment prior to the Spanish-American War. Wilson was in a tricky spot. He knew he was going to face backlash for his response. Either it was too aggressive or not aggressive enough. Wilson had been elected in 1912 based on his domestic reform policies, and was already in re-election mode when news of the Lusitania arrived that evening. It was not until Monday, May the 10th, when Wilson made his famous Too Proud to Fight speech in front of 15,000 people in Philadelphia. Wilson told the assembled crowd, quote, The example of America must be a special example. The example not merely of peace because it will not fight, but of peace because peace is the healing and elevating influence of the world, and strife is not. There is such a thing as a man being too proud to fight. There is such a thing as a nation being so right that it does not need to convince others by force that it is right. End quote. Over the following days, Wilson met with his cabinet and drafted three notes to be sent to Berlin. Without going into detail of each one, the three notes basically required that Germany disavow the sinking, provide compensation to the victims, and that effective immediately cease all attacks on passenger ships. In Berlin, the response to Wilson's note was clearly split between the civilian and military arms of the Kaiser's administration. Chancellor Betham Holwig immediately called for the suspension of the U-boat campaign, while the naval leaders, Admiral Tirpitz, Pohl, and Chief of Staff Gustav Bachmann, argued that the campaign was a one-trick pony. If they limited their attacks, the whole thing would be useless. Initially, Berlin attempted to deflect the accusations coming from Washington. From their point of view, the Lusitania was a tragic event, yet they felt that its sinking was justified. The Germans had suspected it was carrying munitions, and the second explosion acted as their confirmation. Schweiger's after-action report confirmed that only one torpedo had been launched. Further evidence was that it had taken just 18 minutes for Lusitania to sink, which had to be because of a munitions explosion. 
In comparison, the Titanic, the other famous maritime disaster, had taken nearly three hours to sink. Oh, and it's been confirmed beyond doubt that the Lusitania was indeed carrying munitions. As the ship's manifest recorded, 1,248 cases of 3-inch artillery shells, 4,927 boxes of ammo, and 200 tons of explosive powder. Essentially, the German response was what you would call passive-aggressive to the tens. To the admirals, the Lusitania was a legitimate target carrying contraband items. They were sorry American civilians were on board, but the idea of limiting the U-boat campaign was out of the question. Besides, why were so many Americans traveling on a British liner stuffed with explosives? Care to answer that, London? Now here is where conspiracy theorists have their heyday. The Admiralty was aware of the Lusitania's hidden cargo, so the big question was why they did not do more to guarantee its safety. While the Admiralty, specifically its then-leader Winston Churchill, was grilled for answers, the general consensus in America was that the British were at best guilty of negligence. Should they have done more? Yep, probably. But the feeling was that was beside the point. Germany had torpedoed a civilian liner, and they were the ones with American blood on their hands. In the weeks following the sinking, the diplomatic crisis between Germany and the United States evolved into a three-way argument. Under the counsel of his pro-Entente advisors, the shadowy Colonel House and State Department Counselor Robert Lansing, two men who will become major factors in Americans' intervention, Wilson continued to extort pressure on Berlin to curtail the U-boat campaign. The Germans, of course, unwilling to accept total responsibility, directed American blame to the British, saying, look, if the British had done this or that, then none of this would have happened. The important thing to remember is that for President Wilson, it didn't matter one bit whether the Lusitania was carrying munitions, elephants, or Canadian troops, as Chancellor Betham Holwick wrongly attested. A liner of that size was clearly outside the scope of being a legitimate target, and even if it did have contraband items, the best thing U-20 could have done was to abide by a prize law. Although we don't have time to discuss the legality of Germany's arguments, it is fair to say that they were not winning friends with their defense. One of the proposals floated out of Berlin was that Washington should do more to deter its citizens from passing through the war zone. State Secretary Gottlieb von Jakau suggested that American travelers should only be allowed to board on specially marked German liners. This proposal was of course laughed out. The American public believed it had the inalienable right to travel freely across the war zone without risk, and that anything less than total freedom was akin to submitting to German regulations. But Yakow's idea was not without its supporters. William Jennings Bryan, the Secretary of State who would shoot his mouth off once too many times, agreed with Yakow that Washington should be doing more. To Bryan, a staunch neutralist, it was clear that the Lusitania passengers had played with fire. They had known about the risk, the German warnings were clear, yet they boarded anyway. It is recorded that very few, if any, passengers exchanged tickets to sail on a neutral ship. Brian compared the entire episode to traveling on a volcano, in short arguing that if you so choose to ignore the danger, the fault is yours alone. While Brian's attitude sounds a bit callous, the meat of his argument was that by sinking the Lusitania, it was not as if Germany had attacked the United States. So Wilson's pro-entente advisors, Colonel House and Lansing, were totally out of whack for pinning the blame solely on Germany. If anything, blame should be shared equally with London for their negligence. American lives have been lost, yes, but it had been the result of them being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Brian's supporters echoed that 128 lives should not hold sway over 100 million Americans. Public opinion seemed to justify this as well. America wanted assurances, but going to war with Germany was a bit over the top. As an olive branch to Wilson, on June the 1st, Betham Holwig announced that U-boats were no longer authorized to attack targets unless they were absolutely certain it was an enemy vessel and that passenger liners, both neutral and enemy, were strictly off-limits. This turnaround in the U-boat campaign came after weeks of tough negotiation between the Chancellor and naval leaders. As we saw before, the Navy strictly opposed any modification to the U-boat campaign, arguing that once you place a limit, you practically rendered the whole thing useless. Plus, as we saw last week, 
with the high seas fleet under decree not to leave Wilhelmshaven, curtailing the U-boat was akin to surrendering the North Sea Theater. Kaiser Wilhelm was forced to make a decision here. On the one hand, he was in agreement with his chancellor that the risk of alienating the United States was too great, and he had the support of the army in this. Von Falkenhayn, who supported the campaign as long as it not turned America, was worried that worsening relations with Washington would convince Bulgaria to remain neutral. Keep in mind that this was prior to Bulgaria's entry in October. But crucially, Wilhelm had just signed the U-boat order in February, and backpedaling on it now would further damage his already strained relationship with the Navy. So again, Wilhelm struck another unpopular compromise. The Emperor distanced himself from the Chancellor, and essentially told him that he would agree to restricting the U-boats as long as the Chancellor took personal responsibility. Bethlehem Holwig got his way, and on June the 1st, the new orders were in effect. But for President Wilson, this was still not enough. In the weeks following his May the 10th speech, the American president had shifted his perspective, largely because Bryan was losing favor in place of Lansing and Colonel House. Germany's new order of June the 1st fell short of acceptable. Wilson agreed to the principle. It was good that Berlin was curtailing the U-boats, but how was Germany going to guarantee the safety of American travelers? The issue was that Wilson wanted to secure the rights of Americans to travel on any ship, belligerent or otherwise. Freedom of the seas means exactly that. In short, there is no answer to this question. Wilson realized that the only way to guarantee American safety was to call for Germany to end the North Sea War Zone. Such a move would have convinced Berlin that America was no longer neutral, and probably would have resulted in a breaking of diplomatic ties. With public opinion firmly committed to neutrality, Wilson was unwilling to take this step. By the end of July, Wilson accepted Holwig's proposal of June the 1st. If U-boat commanders abided by the order to only attack enemy vessels, then Washington would continue to recognize U-boat warfare against merchant shipping. However, as we saw last week, the new agreement between the U.S. and Germany did not decrease the amount of Allied tonnage sunk by U-boats. In May, 126,900 tons were sunk. In June, 115,290. July, there was a slight dip with 98,000. And in August, 182,770. The final month of the campaign saw the second highest total at 136,050. While we tend to think the Lusitania convinced Germany to abandon the U-boat campaign, this assertion overlooks a number of other important factors. As Berlin and Washington negotiated, it was not as if the North Sea campaign was on postponement. Submarines continued to sink merchant ships, and on August the 19th, a second passenger liner, the Arabic, was sunk. 45 passengers died, of which three were American citizens, further straining the relationship between Germany and the United States. There were two other important developments which factor into this as well. The first was that the British were quickly developing effective anti-submarine measures which were proving effective. On top of Q-ships, which by early summer had destroyed three U-boats, further experiments using spotter blimps, aircraft, and submarine nets were providing returns. Although rudimentary, it was clear the Admiralty was learning U-boat behavior. Using decoys, or forcing the U-boats to dive in order to exhaust their batteries, were beginning to take their toll. As anti-submarine measures improved, U-boat commanders were forced to respond aggressively. Whatever orders came from Berlin, they did not translate well with officers who were operating in isolation. For a U-boat commander, the primary concern was the safety of their boat and crew, and the shoot-first, ask-questions-later motto proved too powerful to abandon. Further weighing on U-boat commanders was a series of events which often go unmentioned in the discussions about the North Sea campaign. On August the 19th, just a few hours after the Arabic was sunk, a separate incident occurred when a British steamer, the Nickerson, was stopped by U-27 in the same area off Queenstown where the Lusitania had been sunk four months earlier. Reports indicate that U-27 was following the rules of prize law and allowing the steamer's crew to enter their lifeboats, when a Royal Navy Q-ship, the HMS Barralong, arrived on the scene and opened fire on U-27, sinking the submarine after a brief skirmish. 
About a dozen of U-27's crew managed to escape, and were attempting to make their way on board the captured steamer. Fearing the German crew were attempting to sabotage the Nikasin, Marines on board the Baralong opened fire on the German sailors, killing many still in the water. Those who made it on board the Nikasin were likewise captured and then executed. While there are conflicting reports over what happened, some say the Baralong captain, Godfrey Herbert, ordered his men to shoot the sailors, others attest that his marines were caught up in bloodlust remain debatable. But the Baralong incident, which was soon followed by a second attack in late September, are important stories to know in order to understand why U-boat commanders continued to target neutral ships despite the June 1st agreement. Although they were isolated incidents, they do help explain some of the underlying tension which played out following the Lusitania crisis. Note 2, the Baralong incident occurred near the end of the first U-boat phase, and its memory would remain fresh when Germany unleashed its second, more deadly campaign in February 1917. The second development we need to address is that on top of agitating the United States, the first U-boat campaign had cost the Germans immensely. From an original fleet of 28 boats, 15 had been lost by the end of September. While additional, more powerful U-boats were in construction, these losses were unsustainable over a prolonged period. Additionally to what we saw last week, there was a general confusion over what the U-boat campaign stood for. Indiscriminate sinking of all merchant vessels had ticked off the United States, but targeting only enemy vessels was not plausible since it was easy for a French or British ship to disguise themselves under an American flag. The only option the U-boat crew had was to abide by prize law, which, as we've seen, was improbable given the increasing Allied countermeasures. In short, Germany was unable to stand by an unrestricted campaign in 1915. There were not enough U-boats available to bring a sufficient amount of Allied shipping to heel, and the risk of continuing, primarily the expense of American neutrality, was far too great. On August 26, 1915, a friend of Chancellor Betham Hallwake, Admiral Henning von Holzendorf, became chief of the naval staff. This appointment coincided with Admiral von Pohl retreating from public view in order to deal with a worsening bout of liver cancer. The new chief of the naval staff would oversee the scaling back of U-boat sorties over the following weeks, and by September 19th, the unrestricted campaign was officially suspended. The significance of the first U-boat campaign was that it had taught Germany some important lessons. First, 787,120 tons of sunk Allied shipping indicated that the submarine was an effective weapon. However, Germany would need time to replace its losses and assemble a larger ocean-going fleet in order to really have an impact. As U-boat construction increased, Germany was building 24 to Britain's 19, there were calls to continue the war against merchant shipping elsewhere. U-boats still operated in the North Sea following the suspension of the campaign, but observed international regulations and prize law. At the same time, however, a second, if minor, campaign was launched in the Mediterranean and Adriatic. These U-boats were shipped overland and assembled at Austro-Hungarian ports, where they were free to sink British, French, and Italian ships without fear of American reprisals. In order to get around the issue that Germany and Italy were not yet at war, U-boats were staffed by a single Austrian officer, but most of the crew remained German. In effect, the suspension of the first U-boat campaign was a significant blow to Germany's overall war effort. In response to the war zone declaration, the Royal Navy had announced a total blockade of Germany. More ships were added, and thus fewer supplies found their way. With no weapon to counter, the blockade would continue to choke off Germany's lifeline. Soon, there would not be enough food for both army and hope front, and there would not be enough munitions to replace the losses in heavy artillery. Ever operating in the background, the blockade would constrict Germany's options. This would become apparent in 1916, when the Allies launched combined offensives at the Somme, in Glacia, and the Isonzo. Although Germany could still fight, it was becoming clear that every gun captured, every shell fired, was a step backwards in an increasingly dwindling supply. When the second U-boat campaign was launched in early 1917, naval leaders would have no moral quarrel about attacking any and all merchant vessel found in the North Sea or Atlantic. It was a sign that Germany's back was against the wall. Instead of 28 boats, Germany would have 105, a third of which would be kept at sea. 
In February 1917, these boats would sink 520,410 tons of Allied shipping, and would reach its zenith in April, with a staggering 860,330 tons. But these momentous achievements had come too late. The entry of America and development of the convoy system would suffer the blow. Plus, the Allies too had taken lessons from the 1915 phase. Improved anti-submarine tactics, depth charges, spotter planes, and of course the convoy system would become prevalent. As we saw last week, the first U-boat campaign was an experiment, and it failed one at that. It had potential, but it was launched prematurely. Now that the Allies knew Germany was capable of such a strategy, they're actively working to counter. Like most new weapons in the Great War, chlorine gas in 1915 and the tank in 1916, once they made their appearance, the initial shock and surprise quickly wore off. Countermeasures were adopted, and whenever advantages gained were quickly checked. Although the Allies now had the clear advantage in the naval war, the contest for supremacy remained open. In February 1916, Admiral Hugo von Pohl succumbed to liver cancer, and the commander-in-chief of the High Seas Fleet passed to Reinhard von Scheer. Von Scheer, a young and ambitious leader, would persuade Kaiser Wilhelm to allow the High Seas Fleet to resume regular sorties. As if to kick off the bloody campaign season of 1916, the British and German fleets, which had eyed each other for 18 months, would meet in a clash of steel off the Danish coast. The Battle of Jutland, the largest naval engagement of the war, would pit the awesome firepower of the opposing fleet's capital ships against each other. For 24 hours, 250 warships of all classes would exchange blows in hopes of deciding supremacy of the North Sea. In the end, 2,551 German sailors would be killed, with the British losing nearly 7,000 in return. Both sides would claim victory, but the question of who truly ruled the seas remained unanswered. Now for next week, I've decided to change things up a bit from our original plan. You'll recall that in episode 24, I mentioned that we would end our discussion of 1915 with an episode on the Armenian massacres. However, I've decided that in order to give it due justice, it would be much better to hold off until we flesh out the wider campaign unfolding in the Persian Gulf and Mesopotamia. That way, we can spend more time picking through the complexities and constructing a larger narrative instead of just putting the Armenian discussion in a vacuum. Instead, next week will be more of a setup for what's ahead in 1916, and how the high commands of the belligerents foresaw the new year playing out. The war would reach a fever pitch in 1916, as a strategy of attrition, the wearing down of the enemy, came into play. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources, email, Twitter, and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Questions, comments, and suggestions are always more than welcome. If you wish to support The Great War Podcast, you can make a one-time donation through our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com or give us a review on iTunes, as that will help keep us afloat in the rankings and force me to keep turning out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.